I'm Mike Asnald and welcome to the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge's AC23 Plus Artist Legacy Series podcast. This is a series where we talk to artists who are doing amazing things in the areas of the arts, including performance, education, production, as well as arts advocacy. We record this series in the Virginia and John Nolan Black Box Studio, as well as in the Jan and Bill Grimes Recording Studio here at the Cary Siraj Community Arts Center. Be sure to visit artsbr.org for more information on all the great things we are doing here at the Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge. Hope you enjoyed the podcast series, and thanks for tuning in.
Sorry about that last part. <laughs> As they say, that's the jazz, right? That's the jazz. <laughs> uh, well, I'd like to welcome my longtime wonderful friend, amazing musician, Mr. Bobby Campo. Thank you, Michael. Glad to be here. Well, glad to have you here. And we're going to talk a lot about a lot of things. Um, I'm just excited to have Bobby here because he's he re to me he represents um, what the history of music in Baton Rouge for the past <laughs> for the past ten years at least, right? Well, <laughs> just ten minutes maybe, but. Um, no, it's, it's funny, if you live long enough, right, you become one of those guys that had, had seen it when it happened. Right, um, right. And I was very fortunate to, in my early years, to have been befriended by Lee Forche and John Gerbrecht and the guys that came in that generation. Which, well, uh, so for our listeners who might not know those names or how um, what a vital role they played in the history of music in Baton Rouge and beyond. Uh, what can you tell us about those two guys? Oh, wow. Well, they were both great trumpet players. Mm -hmm. uh, if we talk about Johnny Gerberich, I mean, it, he's in the Band Director Hall of Fame, Louisiana Band Director Hall of Fame, because he was an extraordinary band director, as was Mr. Forche, but uh, more known for his band directing, but, and what a lot of people didn't know is he was principal trumpet with Baton Rouge Symphony for a while. I don't think I knew that. I knew he played in the symphony, yeah. but I didn't realize he was principal. Okay. And uh, very good trumpet player. He was my first trumpet teacher. You know, and so, so, like, what age did you start studying with? I started at 10, and I think I was taking lessons with Johnny at 12. Wow. Okay. It's, it's, it's funny. He died, what, a year ago, and he was 90, but I still call him Johnny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you right. know? But uh, anyway, it was, it was, if we were at school or something, it was always Mr. Gerberich. Right. So. Right. Yeah. But... Uh, and Lee, Mr. Forche, played, uh, he played with Woody Herman's band, and... Um, was he playing lead in the band? No, he was playing third, I think. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who, I don't know what the lineup was, but yeah. he was a very good friend of Carl Fontana, who mm -hmm. was an extraordinary trombonist. Right. And uh, Carl got him on the band, and he stayed out six months, and he came home, you know? And said, Mr. Forche, what an opportunity, because that's when Woody Herman's band was just killing everything right. and uh why'd you come home he said well i, I missed mama and the kids so I, I had to so he gave up the road life and six months was enough six months was enough for him uh mm -hmm. so he came back and he said i got my master's degree for mama and then <laughs> and, uh, and then he stayed into teaching for a, really a great career right um, yeah but his influence goes deep i mean he's there's a lot of uh, blues guys in town that, that he's influenced, Luther Kent being one of the mm -hmm. more famous. Um, but, uh, you know, and if you go to New Orleans, they know him well over there. Right, uh, right. And his influences with all the jazz musicians that were the generation really before me, but my generation as well. Yeah, I remember being a, probably a high schooler. Yeah, I was in high school, and that's when the name... Lee Forche first popped up because he was still teaching at Baton Rouge High. Mm -hmm. um, this is uh, well, he had a, he had had a stroke. Yeah, yeah. And he was still at Baton Rouge High, and um, you have to fix me on the history, but because um, you may have been at Baton Rouge High at that point. No, when I started hearing that name. No, sure. uh, if I may just no, abruptly correct you. <laughs> yeah, please. Because uh, because I came on at Baton Rouge High in January of '89, which is when he died. Oh, so it was about two years after I graduated so, from high school. So, uh, 
So um, Mr. Gerberick called me. I had, I had done a year of K through eight, mm -hmm. you know, and I was about to start my career at Winn-Dixie because this was not going to work. <laughs> not going to so work. So this, this was your entree into teaching, yes. K through eight. Yes, and then uh, that, was, that was my first year in it. Uh, strangely enough, the, the kindergartners, first, second, third graders, those were the best. Mm -hmm. they were, that was great. Now when they get to be... Uh, a little older, they start to... They start to know everything. Yeah, they start to push back a little bit, and it's just not a lot of fun. Right. But anyway, so uh, Mr. Gerberek called me uh, when Mr. Forche had died, and he said, look, why don't you come in and finish the year? And I said, Johnny, thank you, but no thank you. I've just mm -hmm. done a year of this. And he laughed, he laughed out loud on the phone, and he said, look, this is not that. Right. <laughs> and he would know. He's done it all. He has done it all. I mean... Right from beginning bands to extraordinary bands, you know. Uh, anyway, uh, so I said, well, okay, and I wasn't doing anything. He said, well, just come in and finish the year, because I was just going to do jazz bands, not concert bands. Mm -hmm. He said, come in and finish the year, and then, then we'll talk about it. And I said, okay, well, you know, it's worth a shot. I'm not really employed right now, so right. that would be good. Right. <laughs> so, um, and he was, of course, right. My first students were John Bear. The bassist. The yeah. bassist, yes. yeah. yeah. Uh, Liz Campbell, mm -hmm. play piano. Yeah. Extraordinary musicians. I'm, yeah. I'm going, wait, this is, <laughs> this is, what is this? This is, this is like way different. Right. So we had some really good bands early on. Um, I understand John's doing very well in uh, New Jersey. Is yeah, it? John's up there, and I think um, he plays regularly with uh, the amazing pianist Fred Hirsch. Oh, yeah. yeah. As well as a lot of other people. But, uh, yeah, he's still, he's doing it. I'm glad to hear that. I'm yeah. glad to hear. I, I, I don't. I miss not seeing those guys, but uh, yeah. you know, I'm glad they're out there playing and playing their hearts out. I bet. Right. So, so I know you said you studied with Johnny, but did you also study with Lee? Not on the trumpet. Um, he wanted me to go to Broadmoor, and I lived at right like two blocks from Ostrumma, so I went to Ostrumma High School. Okay, so he was teaching at Broadmoor High. So he was teaching at Broadmoor at the time. Yeah, I, I guess I skipped that part, but. Um, Anyway, he was doing adjunct with the uh, Southeastern Band, mm -hmm. Southeastern Jazz Band. And so I had been a year at the University of Miami and was too far from home. So I came home and went to Southeastern to study with Bob Weatherly, who was uh, an incredible trumpet player. Mm -hmm. um, at 15, I believe it was, he beat out his teacher for the principal trumpet job with St. Louis Symphony. At 15? At 15 <laughs> or 16. And for most of his career, he was he was commuting between... St. Louis and Radio City Music Hall, and that was his, his gig. Mm. An incredible mind, you know, uh, and didn't miss a thing. I mean, you'd, you'd be playing in the band and you'd like play an F sharp, which for those of you who can't hear that, is a second valve note, right? right. And it's supposed to be an F natural, which is a first valve note. And he wouldn't even look up from conducting, he just looked, he just <laughs> he just looked your way and, and put down his first finger and, and you knew, okay, oh yeah, I missed it. Right. But, I mean, so anyway, at that time, I'm walking down the hall, it was my first year there, and Mr. Forche is coming, we're going we're gonna to meet in the middle. And he goes, hey, you, little man, I, you know, and I became little man from then on. Right. Little man, said, you're going to be in the jazz band. I said, well, Okay. And so that was your first, first jazz. experience? Yeah, yeah that okay. was the first. Was my second year of college was the first jazz I ever played. So, And that was your first meeting of... of that was, yeah, well, I knew who he was, yeah. and, and we, had, we had spoken before. Mm -hmm. 
but it was always like in a relationship, uh, an adult high school teacher to a snot-nosed little teenager high right. schooler, mm -hmm. you know. So, uh, but anyway, uh, good memories, the good memories, and yeah. uh, so. So, and uh, we've, of course, you and I have a long history, and we've had lots of conversations, but I think you, I remember you mentioning that you would be on jobs with these two guys. With yeah. Forche and Gerbrecht in one the trumpet section. One of my very first recording sessions that I did was with was for pot liquor, which unless you're a Louis, a, even a Baton Rouge, you know, if you're from Louisiana, you would know who pot and near 70, you would know who pot liquor is. Mm -hmm. That aside, pardon me. Um, you know, I got called into the session, so I'm I'm sitting in between Mr. Gerberek and Mr. Forche. You know, and I'm still in high school. Oh, you're high school. Oh, yeah. I'm like, I'm not freaking out, you know. Um, but, I mean, in Forte's, yeah, like, I know we play it this way. This goes short. This goes long. You know, he said, just follow me on this. And it's like, it's like, man, it was the best training wheels, you know, you ever had as, as, a, as a musician because I, there was no way I could fail. I had the two, two of the best supporting me, you know, so. That reminds me of the saying of... Uh it's more in terms, I guess, of, of gigging, but it's the same thing. It's a session. Uh, there's no better lesson because it's it's the it's the test first, and then the lesson. Yeah, so yeah, 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 yeah. You just get in and do it. If uh, if you can manage to not, you know, get uncontrollably nervous or in awe, mm -hmm. you know, and just work on doing your job, you know. And, you know, then, then you can loosen up a little bit and you listen to the other guys and go, oh, no, that's how he swings. Oh, that's, wow, that's very cool. Yeah. I need to play it like that, you know. And, right. and so, and y you studied with Mr. Bat, so you mm -hmm. know that the, the oral tradition was, is a very big deal with musicians and especially Certainly. jazz musicians. Right. And it's like, no, son, it goes like this. And, and you, you learn, like you learn speaking, you, you learn by imitating what you hear. Exactly. Yeah. And then... Uh, as you grow, your own vocabulary starts to develop and you start to internalize more of these things that you've been hearing and, and even things you are learning unconsciously, mm -hmm. which can, to me, only happen in music. But uh, you're sitting there and you're not even know, you don't even know that you're listening to the guy phrasing and right. swinging his, his butt off. And all of a sudden, you're like swinging there right with him. It just like falls into it. And so... Yes, the, the Good, oral process. Those are those are two of my favorite guys. You know, my when I was coming up, and mm -hmm. and even when I say coming up, it includes college years. Right. So yeah, it's funny because um, I'll catch myself. You know, if I'm playing something, um, I might play something that kind of reminds me of something that Bad showed me. But but I'd also notice it because we're both educators. Uh, in my educational process, like I'd say something to a kid, a student, and I'd like, oh, wait a minute, Bat used to say that to me. <laughs> you know, you kind of, you filter that as well. Yeah. yeah. Oh, look. I, uh, I taught trumpet adjunct for a year at Southern. Uh, it, was, it was a hard year for me because I was doing Baton Rouge High and Southern and living in Hammond. Hmm. So, you know. Road war. I saw a lot of roadway <laughs> in the dark. Yeah. So, but um, one day, none of my trumpet students showed up, which were three. So it's not a big deal. Um, 
and I'm sitting in the auditorium watching Bat teach. But really, I went in because I heard him practicing. And yeah. so he's just sitting on the stage, not facing the audience. Oh, sorry, that was a Harmon mute, by the way. <laughs> um, so he's sitting on the stage, not facing the audience, but facing the back of the stage, playing things, and he's, he's practicing. He was constantly practicing fourths and, you know, his, and just learning the ins and outs of the relationships of a fourth which, of course, if you invert it, is a fifth, and, you know, we could all use a fifth on our kids. Oh, never mind. No, 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 go there. I'm just kidding there. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, so, and, and in walks a kid, right? Mm -hmm. And the kid just picks, opens his case, takes out his horn. In this case, it was a tenor saxophone. And he just sits down, and he just doesn't play. He just sits down, the horn's ready to go, and Bad says, look, play this. And he, and, he, and he starts to play one of the things he's been working on. And the kid would go, and he said, no, 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 that's not it. Listen, play this. Do, 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 do. And no, 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 you're not listening. And right. he would not, he wouldn't show him like, okay, you need to play F, B flat, da, 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 mm -hmm. and, and stuff like that. He would say, listen, you know, hear it, figure it out. Go through the process. So, yeah. and, and especially in jazz, being able to hear and convert what's going on in your brain with, with, or merge, I should say, with what's coming in on in your ears. Right. Uh, that, that, that's that's where. That's, I don't. I can't say it's the hard part for some people. It seems like it's ridiculously easy, but if you listen to any of the Keith Jarrett interviews when he talks about coming up, he said, who was, maybe in my opinion, the one of the finest. I'll just put one of the finest jazz piano players that has ever lived uh, amen to that so yeah. uh but he said yeah and he says he was receiving an award from for from the teachers association the national yeah NTA, uh, i think i, think I saw it was. that interview, and yeah. he said yeah and he says you know it's, it's a lot of this and that and the other thing but there's also a lot of just hard work mm -hmm. you know he would spend hours and hours and hours you know and that that's what i used to laugh at my kids this is a slight aside you know uh i taught as Mike knows, and you are, may or may not know, but I taught the jazz band at, at Baton Rouge High School since since 1989. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, over the years, you run into kids, guitar players mostly, um, that, that say, oh, yeah, I'm going to be a rock and roll star. And I said, you have no idea not only what that means, but what it takes to become that. Right. Those, right. those guys just didn't, you know, crawl out from under a rock and become a rock star. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's You're seeing hundreds. the end result when you You're see You're seeing that. a three-hour show that took thousands of hours to prepare for, right. you know. Right. So, yeah. and, you know, they were lucky as well. <laughs> well, going back to Bat, I remember I have stories of, or just memories of walking into that music building. And at that time, he spent most of his time just sort of in the... There was a room, as soon as you walked into the main building to your right, where the band rehearsed. It wasn't the main auditorium. And it was a double door, and inevitably be both doors would be open. And he'd be in there practicing yep. every day, like you said. And it, you had to make a decision when you walked in, because he was <laughs> going to see you. So how busy you were, because as soon as he saw you, yeah. I, mean, I can't tell you how many times, be, uh, oh, Michael, what you doing? You better have an answer because otherwise, three hours later, you can still be in there oh practicing yeah. with him. Yeah. But I remember thinking, okay, here's a guy who at that time was probably in his mid-60s who practiced nonstop 
And he had the resume already. He had played with so many greats, yep. Ray Charles, yep. Yep. Cannibal Adderley, go down the list. And I'm thinking, here I am, you know, barely practicing an hour a day. Right. It's like, well, hold up. You know, yeah. so it really taught me, you know, it, it's never ending and I'm not serious enough. Well, that's know? that's the thing. And uh, once you get past a lot of the technical hurdles, you know, it starts to get good to you. Mm -hmm. And and then practicing becomes a little bit easier. Right. And the older you get, it becomes essential right. and not not just to keep physically uh, at, at a certain level mm -hmm. but mentally at a certain level and even uh emotionally right. you know not you know we call it phoning in sometimes and we hate those guys by the way so if you're listening <laughs> um but you know you you just give it your all and that even that takes practice you know yeah so yeah, that learning to consistently be you bring that intensity Mm -hmm. to, to what you're doing. You know, it's a funny, it's a kind of a funny story, okay? We were playing, uh, gosh, I was working for this uh, Blackbird Presents group, and they were doing a birthday party tribute concert in Chicago for Mavis Staples. Oh, wow. Yeah. Uh, and it, there was a who's who of people who wanted to be on the concert, right? Mm -hmm. And Sonny Emery, who played with Earth, Wind, and Fire for like maybe 15 or so years, great drummer. So we're going through these a few acts, and you know, Sonny's, Sonny's phoning it in. I'm, I'm gonna tell on you, Sonny. But uh, he's playing a part, and he's playing it well. It's just not, there's just no excitement behind what he does. Well, Michael McDonald, who had just flown in from the left coast, Doobie Brothers, Michael Doobie McDonald. Brothers, Michael McDonald, yeah. She <laughs> never mind. <laughs> Everybody's got their Michael McDonald. But uh who by the way is a sweet sweetheart. Yeah. I mean, he's just his nicest guy and very keen, very mm -hmm. very keen and, and sharp on a lot of everything. Well, he came in it was cold outside and um he comes in in this long overcoat and he takes off the coat and we go right to his tune, you know? And um which was really a Mavis tune and I can't remember the but Mm -hmm. He says, man, I'm so lucky to have pulled this tune, you know. And so the, we counted off. Don was, a, I'm sure, was on bass. Mm -hmm. And so, and then Sonny was playing, you know. And all of a sudden, Michael starts into the tune. And it's like, it's his A game. Right. It's like, this ain't right. rehearsal. Right. Uh, this is like, my goodness. The only difference is that he's facing us instead of mm -hmm. an empty audience. But um, all of a sudden, Sonny's, Sonny's game went from like, gear. from like 70% to like 99%, and, right. and the whole band just lit up. And the only reason I relate that story is, is because that's the thing that intensity brings. Mm -hmm. And, and, and I, I know since, since I've been very fortunate to have worked with Michael McDonald a few times, that he brings his A game every time. Right. Every right. time, you know, yeah. you know, I've never, I've never heard him mark. And and for those of you who are not singers, that means you're kind of saving your voice for the concert. Mm -hmm. He just gets stronger he and stronger. Yeah. And he's not, he's he's not a spring chicken. I'll tell on him. He's my age, which is seventy one. So, yeah. um, and he still sounds as good as he did when he was thirty. You know. I want to backtrack to him um, as we get further into sure. this because I know. Um, before we, we do anything, I want to play another tune, but I, I don't want to leave out your history with LaRue. And if I remember right, you, you guys back in the day, 
maybe did a tour where you're opening up with Doobie Brothers or something. We like did. That. Um, yeah. It was the One Step Closer tour, mm-hmm. and we did the East Coast version of it. Mm-hmm. The hard part of that was the Doobies. The Doobies would play like, uh, you know, Saturday night and Sunday, and then they'd be off till Thursday. Well, we as an as an opening act, you can't afford to do that. So Saturday night, we you know Sunday night, and then we got we're looking. Our routing goes, you know, ping pong, ping pong to catch the days in between so we can at least make enough money to stay out on the road. Right. But uh, phenomenal group. Right. I mean, wow. Uh, Bobby Lacan was playing percussion. He and I got to, because sp- I was playing percussion with LaRue mostly. Mm-hmm. And, and he was very, very sweet art of a guy. He's unfortunately passed. He, he died of cancer some years back. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they were all nice guys. Yeah. I mean, just, you know. And it happens because it, they came up hard, you know. It's like they played the nightclubs, they played the bars. They, they did, paid their dues. They paid their dues. And, uh, you know, I, I, I always found that, that those guys were, were generally friendly and respectful of the efforts that you're putting into mm-hmm. trying to make a career as opposed to the overnight success people who are usually a really pain in the neck. Right, um, right. No offense to any of you overnight success people. <laughs> but, uh, well, uh, well, I know in our, our conversations over the years, you, you've mentioned, I mean, obviously you've had a lot of influences, but one of them being just the rhythm and blues tradition, South Louisiana or Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge. Baton Rouge. I mean, when I came up in high school, there were horn bands. So you were playing Aretha Franklin, uh, all those people. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm right. having a moment, but, uh, you know, James Brown. Mavis Staples. Mavis. Some yeah. Mavis. Uh, but every, anything with a horn lick in it, mm-hmm. you know, you were, you were, those, we were playing, we were those bands. Yeah. So um, you didn't make any money. I mean, my first gig was at Thunderbird Beach, and I think I made $7.35. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's after they split it up amongst right. the horn guy, the horn, the the big. It was a big soul band, but getting to what you're talking about, you know, being around soul music and you know music that's really deep into the feel and pocket of music, you know, that was the best thing that could have ever happened to me at that age because mm-hmm. you learn. Musicians reference the word time, meaning the beat and, you know, where it, where because it, you can do a lot of things with the time, as pretty right. much everybody who in music knows. Um, but the, the pocket guys, the ones that put it there and don't move, you know, that's those are the guys that are the most fun to play with. Right. And um, so I got used to playing time, like we call it exactly in the center, which mm-hmm. is pretty much. And now you got guys that go uh, lay back and play a little behind the beat, and it's, it works. Right. Uh, Basie's band being the most famous example. Mm-hmm. And then you got other bands that are on top, and it feels a little bit, it never rushes. I mean, I'm going to, well, it, it never rushes, but it feels like it's just like a freight train coming down the track, right? right? There's no relax, it's just like. Mm-hmm. Um, Many times that can be done very intentionally. Oh, yeah. To, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 Uh, Anyway, uh, actually, I'll say it. I'm thinking of uh, a couple of the Buddy Rich bands that I heard. Mm-hmm. You know, Buddy's time was perfect. There was nothing. I mean, it's perfect. Right. And the band's time was perfect. But it always sounded aggressive. 
Right. You know, right. it never sounded laid back. Like Basie's band always sounds laid back and relaxed. And it's like, right. you know, come on, you're going to make it. Come on. No, you're going to be late. You're going to uh, be late. Oh, you made it. And it's like, <laughs> so anyway, it, uh, there, there are those things. And so I think my upbringing in, in horn soul bands uh, helped me to lock into the feel. Right. You know, and, right. and, and develop a good sense of time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. you know. So let's play something kind of maybe in that tradition. We can, or we can make up something in that style. <laughs> you know, just some kind of I'm going to put the mute back in because it's a little, yeah. a little harsh without it. Mm-hmm. But you're going to play some blues? Yeah, let's do that. You, you tell me the key. We'll figure something out. Let's play... Um, Oh yeah, what, what key is that? Uh, <laughs> things ain't what they used to be. Huh? Yeah, it's is a, that uh, it? Yeah, that's Duke Ellington. Yeah, what key we in? F. Okay. okay. One intro, the intro thing. Da 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 da. A one two. Thank you. 
Bob. The thing you were doing with your left hand. Mm -hmm. Play that for me. You talking about the? Uh... Yeah, just do the do the left hand. Yeah, see, that's where it is. Right. You know. Right. Uh, that's the 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 pocket, I guess. Yeah. yeah. So. Well, anyway. that's why I'll be honest with you. That's why. I think I've enjoyed playing with you, and and it's it's. I'll, I'll be honest; it's it's a handful of musicians who have um, a certain sense of time, um, understanding of it, um, awareness of it. That just makes playing so enjoyable and comfortable. See, you know, once again, I have to go back to Mr. Forche because that's what he preached: mm -hmm. time, time, time. Right. You, yeah. you go, you're stepping ahead of it. Get, back it up. Mm -hmm. Time. Listen to where it is. And he just, he just drove it, it into your head. So right. Uh, that along with the upbringing that I had, you know, I, I knew it was there. I just didn't know what it was. Right. And he made me aware. And so uh, then you're better able to concentrate and make your time better. You hone it, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, these days, like today, for instance, this is a lovely sounding piano, but I don't, it's the, the mix, what I hear, I'm playing really hard, so if I, if I busted any notes, that's my excuse and I'm staying with it, okay, so uh, hold your phone That's calls. the grease on it, you yeah. know. So, um, but yeah, 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 yeah. Well, so, I mean, if you're, you're coming up in that, you have that background, um, and, and obviously you're an educated musician too, I mean, you, you learn to read, and, and I know you played in the symphony at certain points. Um, but I'm trying to lead all this into you're in your 20s, you're in Baton Rouge, and um, tell me how the band, because one of the things that you're very well known for is your history with LaRue. The, how would yeah. you, how would you Those describe good that band um, as far as stylistically? Wow, see, say? again, um, it's, people would ask, even back then, and there were a few that were, the Monkees is the greatest example of, of someone throwing a band together, handpicking certain musicians, and then all and turning it into a really good band, and they had some great hits. Everybody else, you just kind of got to get lucky, mm -hmm. you know. Um, so, and by luck, it's there used to be a saying that they, that Johnny used to say is like, "Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity." Right. So, you could that's a good one, and so you 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 know, we were working. In a, in a horn band called the Levy Band, uh, and in that band was Rod Roddy and Jeff the Pollard, keyboard player, mm -hmm. and yeah, Jeff Pollard, guitar player, singer, and I was there, and a bass player named Russell Wasson, who oh, I, I remember Russell, Russell still yeah. lives in Baton Rouge, mm -hmm. but anyway, um, the band was playing a little bit, but I mean, you know, this was the only money like that Jeff and Rod and I think Russell were making. I don't know that they had. We were young and foolish. And, um, <laughs> well, what a great tune. <laughs> yeah, it'd be great. Um, but, you know, so we're playing all these bars and stuff like that and going home with, you know, 35, 40 bucks. And it's just not making it. So Jeff and Rod started, and Russell, the trio, they started to do a, um, and it might have been just Jeff and Russell. I'm not sure first. But they started to do these little duet slash trio things and acoustic. 
and different tunes. We were doing soul band tunes, but, you know, Jeff was doing, like, Pure Prairie League and, you know, Horse With No Name and, uh, you know, all, mm -hmm. all those really nice vocal right. kind of tunes. And so Rod, who was also hungry, joined them, you know, and then so he started singing and they started doing uh, things. And then later on, I came on the, the band because I was hungry and I started singing and we were doing uh, the vocal things were starting to form themselves and work out pretty well, actually. Yeah. Um, and um, we'll fast forward, you know, uh, David Peters was on the band. Drummer. Uh, mm -hmm. Yep. And uh, so Russell decided he didn't want to do it anymore. And we were getting a following in Baton Rouge. We were playing Joe Reed's, which nobody, well, no, I'll take that back. There's a few people that remember Joe Reed's, a great club, and small, but the crowds we would get were just so wonderful. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, when, when Baton Rouge loves you, you know, you are, <laughs> you are deeply loved, truly. Right, right. Um, but uh, so Russell left, and I don't know how Jeff knew Leon, but they knew each other, and so Leon came... This is Leon Medica. Leon Medica, I'm sorry. Yeah, um, Leon came on the band, and then, you know, it was great. We were doing well. We were having some success. And then Jeff said, look, I really want to make this electric, not just acoustic. So then, you know, out comes the electric guitars, and, and the, the edge starts to get a little harder. You know, David's playing the drums really well. And Leon, at the time, was working with Gatemouth Brown. Okay. So... Yeah. Leon eventually, I'm, I'm condensing a lot of things, sure, but sure. Leon eventually got everybody that was the Jeff Pollard band into Ga as Gatemouth's backup band. Mm. And so we backed up, we worked with Gate for at least a year, maybe a little longer. And one of the things we did was the, the uh, National Folk Festival at Wolf Trap. Okay. And uh, we played on the stage, which was really fortunate because it's a wonderful experience in and of itself. But when we go back down to the dressing room, there's a guy from the State Department there, and he goes, man, I love this. I'm sending you guys to Africa. And, of course, <laughs> we immediately went, yeah, <laughs> you know, right. we're snorting. Uh, well, I mean, guffawing. Laughing story. Yeah. <laughs> the, um, and so he goes, he says, no, no, not really. I was, you know, I told Leon on the side, I said, look, I'll believe it, you know, when I, when I see it, because he was saying, man, you guys got to get anvil cases and you got to do stuff, which is a pretty steep expense mm -hmm. if you're just going to go to, uh, you know, Pankerville. Right. So, but um, fast forward about four or five months and Leon says, you better start buying them cases because the guy came through and we did a cultural exchange thing with a band from Africa where they toured the United States okay. and we toured the East Coast of Africa, okay. which is like... What an experience that was. We were six weeks in Africa. Wow. And so we get back, and we're playing the Kingfish, which was the club to play in Baton Rouge back then. And uh, it was kind of funny. Uh, the Jeff Pollard band was becoming very popular in the area. Uh, and um, so the road monitor comes, comes out to us during the break. We're playing Gates' set. And he comes out to us on the Blake. He says, I got some good news and I got some bad news. And I said, well, what's the good news? He says, the good news is we're going to be in Houston next week. He says, great. So what's the bad news? Y'all all have to come. 
So that's how he fired us. So we were we were fired, and Gate replaced the whole band. So which he's done. He d he does. Right. It's not unusual. Right. So from then, you know, we went hard into the Jeff Pollard band thing, and of course we had a following here in Baton Rouge, and Leon was one of those musical business smart guys, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't know how he knew these people, but he knew he knew um, people in Nashville. Uh, who, uh, anyway, he got Jeff signed with Screen Gems Publishing as a songwriter, which was, I think, at the time owned by Capitol Records. So we did a showcase, the band did a showcase in Nashville. And, and they said, yeah, da, 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 as, as record companies always do, you know, oh, I'm not sure, mm. y'all need to do a showcase in Los Angeles. So we did, we ended up doing, I think, three showcases at the Roxy in wow. Los Angeles. Um, the first, the first one we're doing, and there's record company executives throughout the house, and the first show we're doing, it's a very small stage with a circular front or semicircle, and the curtain is going up, and we're getting ready to start, and we're all excited, we're gonna burn it, nah, nah, nah. well, Jeff's microphone gets hung up in the curtain. <laughs> That's like a spinal tap. <laughs> and, <kind of> <laughs> yeah, and as the curtain goes up, so does Jeff's microphone. <laughs> it's like, and we're, we're laughing, and it's like, okay. So they, they bring it back down, and you got it all straight. But, you know, one thing led to another, and we ended up signing with Capitol Records, and that was really the beginning of LaRue. So, so at that point, was a lot of the, uh, the material already written for that first album? Or? Um, yes, uh, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I didn't write any material, so I, you know, but we weren't playing a lot. We were, were we all playing that we were material? playing some of it. Okay. But like New Orleans Ladies, we had not been playing, yeah. uh, I don't think. And um, which is a beautiful song that uh, Leon, Medica, and Hoyt Garrick wrote together. Okay. And, uh, which you have a, a very well-known flute solo <laughs> on that tune. Yeah. A rock tune with a flute solo. That's well, I, I thought of it as like uh, Led Zeppelin with a Mellotron. That's yeah. how I looked at it, yeah. you know, so right. it's just like, this is my version of Stairway to Heaven, <laughs> you know, and it, but anyway, so, yeah, yeah uh, and back then, it was no nonsense, no wasting time, so Leon said, look, we don't have time for you to work on something in the studio with the tape rolling, uh, he says, now go in the back and write something out, and then, you know, in about a half hour, an hour, we're going to call you, and you're going to have to put that down, I said, okay, so I went out, and I, I wrote the solo, and I, I came out and said, okay, and you know, you know, Mike, because you write things, and you know that, that that first time you play something, whether it's a melody or a chord change or, you know, some sort of thing that you've been working on, it's a dangerous step out there because you're naked, you know, and, you, and yeah, you're, right, you're right. hoping that, well, I hope nobody just tramples on my you're, soul. You're very vulnerable at that point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I came out there, and I said, okay. Now, there's three parts, but so you, you can't take the whole thing. I'm trying to explain the whole thing. Leon said, just, just, just play it. So I, I played the first part of it, and, uh, you know, which is basically the melody. And I said, I mean, do you want me to go on? Is this okay? You know, and he said, oh, no, no, keep going. This is fine. So we immediately, before we went to any of the other parts, we immediately, because there are three parts, we immediately mm -hmm. tripled that. So each part has three flutes on it. Right. Which, as anybody who teaches music understands, three amateur flute players, <laughs> the only way to get them in tune is to shoot two of them. So, <laughs> and I'm out there, and I'm not, I'm not playing in tune with myself. But it, 
so it gives it that sort of Mellotron sound right, because yeah, it's, it's not exactly. Yeah. Uh, so but anyway, and by the time we got to the the ninth flute, you know, they were all excited about it. So yeah. and, and yeah. I was proud of it. I was. So that really happened in the studio. Abs- absolutely. Yep. Yeah. Well, so like, what what were those days like? So now you're on the road. You're playing in a rock band. Well, you know, it's it's good and it's bad. You're on stage and you're having the best hour and a half of your life. Mm-hmm. And then the next 20 some odd hours, you know, some of it you're sleeping and the rest of the time you're just bored mm-hmm. watching TV, playing some sort of video game on a bus, right. you know. And a lot of times the curtains are closed so you can't even see where you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still, there's it a sort of a camaraderie that comes of this. Right. And you're really, you're really having a good time, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, so, I mean, I don't know that any of those guys are going to listen to this, but I, I love you all, okay? I do. And those were yeah. great years, and I'm, I'm very happy to have been a part of it, yeah. truly. And how many years would you say that was for you? Well, let's see. Uh, my last uh, date with them was in 1985, and we started, really, the Jeff Pollard thing was around 77, 78, because Gatemouth in Africa was 76. So, yeah, does anybody, that's 1976, <laughs> okay? Uh, but, um, yeah, and I think 85 was, I think my last gig was the uh, Tad Gormley Stadium in New Orleans, and we were opening up, Ozzy Osbourne was the, was the headliner, mm-hmm. and it had rained, and I think there was at least six to eight inches of water on the field. Wow. People were standing and, you know, and uh, so anyway, we, uh, so the, the program had been held up a bit, so we, and they still wanted us to play, so we went out and played for a half hour and a very short set, and mm-hmm. that was it. Yeah. I was done. Yeah. But there, look, there's so many moments, so many moments. Uh, we're in San Francisco playing the Cow Palace, opening up for ZZ Top. Man, this sounds like I've had a career. Damn. <laughs> well, you have. Uh, I don't think you give it enough credit, but, uh, uh, as much credit as you should. But uh, we're playing opening for ZZ Top, and, and the, the Cow Palace is f- filled. And nobody wants to hear us. They want to hear ZZ Top. And so I'm playing congas, and all of a sudden I hear, so, what, was, what was that? People were throwing quarters at the band, and by throwing, I mean they were like a good 60 mile an hour fastball. <laughs> they were they were throwing quarters like at something you. In the Blues Brothers movie. <laughs> oh yeah. So I go outside. Uh, I'm hauling my equipment. We we get off stage unharmed, and I'm hauling my equipment out. And I got a conga here uh, at the stage door, and then I'm taking one and putting it under the bus. Well, I had taken my wristband off you know, just because I was ready to go. And it turns out that Hell's Angels was security. <laughs> and the guy sitting at the door saw me with the conga go up to the bus and put it in, and so I'm coming back, and he goes, hey, where are you going? I said, well, I, I got to go get the rest of my stuff. He said, you don't have a wristband. He said, I said, yes, sir. I went and sat on the bus, and, <laughs> you know. That they, was it. That was it. Hey, fellas, can somebody get my stuff? Or, right, right. Uh, but anyway, you look back on those moments, and it's like even then you you, you kind of laugh, and you you just it's kind of good stuff, you know. It's right. just a fun kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's 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 uh, something that most people don't get to experience. Yeah, and, and believe me, I I've count my I count my blessings daily, twice mm-hmm. a daily, three times a daily. Mm-hmm. But um, 
because uh, it was a great experience, and I'm, and I'm glad I, I got out when I did because it, you know, it afforded me to go back to school. Mm -hmm. Not afforded, it forced me to go back to school and finish my degree, and then I ended up teaching and had a, loved my, my, my kids and my teaching career at Baton Rouge High School. Wonderful years. Right. You know, right. and, you know, I'm still playing. You know, how can well, you not, not be happy and thankful? You're still playing and you're doing, uh, well, I'll drop some names. Uh, you're working with uh, Don Was, the yep. probably one of the most famous living producers today. Yeah, no, truly. He's a total sweetheart. Yeah. Very quiet guy, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, but then he comes up with an idea and it's like, oh, of course, you know. Right, right. <laughs> You know, uh, but he's, he's, I've never worked with him in the studio, but I bet he's wonderful in the studio. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Don was, uh, Warren Haynes is kind of the front guy. Warren Haynes is his Well, well is tell, the, tell the listeners what this project is, or in general. Okay, uh, the company is uh, Blackbird Presents. Keith Wortman is the president. And um, we did s some tribute concerts at the Sanger, and it was basically a call band, but the call was, you know, Don was on bass, uh, Terrence Higgins on drums, Warren yeah, Haynes yeah. on guitar, Jamie Johnson on guitar, um, and John Modeski on keyboards. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like a pretty good throw-together band, right. and it's not completely throw-together. I mean, we did three days of rehearsal. But, so we, the first tribute concert we did, I think, was the Neville Brothers, and then the next one was Dr. John, and then the third one we did was The Last Waltz. Now, I may be leaving something out, so forgive me if I did. But and the last waltz being uh, the, last the, the band called The Band. Correct. Yeah. The Canadian band called uh, The Band. Mm -hmm. And anyway, their last uh, two or three concerts was filmed by director uh, Martin Scorsese. And Scorsese put the film together, and he titled the film The Last Waltz. And they had all kind of guests, Dylan and, I mean... The Who's Who, everybody, because they were famous. They were, and they're incredible songs. So um, when we did the stuff, we did all the music from The Last Walls. Mm -hmm. And then we threw a couple of uh, New Orleans ringers in there with Cyril Neville and uh, Dave Malone. Yeah. You know, and uh, it, it, at the end of the concert, Don, <laughs> I was talking to Don, and he says, oh, by the way, he said, don't throw your music away. And he said, oh, really? He says, yeah. He says, I think there might be a tour involved. Mm -hmm. Well, now we tour every November. So yeah. it's just like, and I look so forward. I wish we were touring three times a year because well, it's just three weeks. And I know this because, you know, you know, you and I talk all the time. But uh, along, those, along the way on those tours, you're working with Willie Nelson. Well, Will, no, well Willie, no. We, we worked with Lucas Nelson. Okay. Okay. Uh, Lucas is Willie's youngest son. Uh -huh. But, I mean, Michael McDonald was on one of those yeah. bands. Uh, gosh. Now, this band also was sort of a nucleus band for the Merle Haggard tribute concert in Nashville, which mm -hmm. sold out the Bridgestone Arena. It's, yeah. I've got some wonderful pictures from, from there. But, I mean, man, Loretta Lynn. Uh, gosh, I, you know, I, I, there's too many names to remember. Right. You know, uh, but the who's who of Nashville. And you're on stage with the p performing with these people. Yeah, 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 no, I'm way in the back in the no, corner. No, you're in the band now. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> but yeah, and, and I'm being real quiet because I'm just so glad to be there. You mm -hmm. know? Oh, I know you've also, part of that, that conglomeration was um, 
the pianist that played with the Rolling Stones for many, many years. Um, oh, yeah. He was on one, uh, a couple of those. Um, yeah. And right now, because I'm trying to think of the name, I can't. I had it this uh, morning. <laughs> yeah. But amazing. You yeah, know, he's a great player. What he does. Yeah. Uh, It'll come to me as soon as he was on the finish. first. He was on the first band uh, mm-hmm. tribute. He was involved, I should say. Yeah, yeah. That was. It's all good, you know. It seems like it's a blur, but then when you start talking about it, it all comes back as like really vivid memories, mm-hmm. and it's like so wonderful. So thank thank you for having <laughs> me here because this is like. I mean, I might have to buy you supper. I don't know. Well. Uh, speaking of memories, uh, you know, the, uh, you don't know this, I don't think, but the first time I heard you play was um, at the Louisiana State University's Union Theater back in the day. This would have been late 80s. And you were guesting with, I guess, the jazz big band. And Bill was conducting, I wasn't think he? Dr. Bill Grimes was yeah. conducting. And I remember I was sitting next to one of my um, longtime teachers and, and dear friend, uh, Dr. Willis Deloney. And I asked him, who was, who's on trumpet? And you were actually playing a flugelhorn. Yeah. And he's like, oh, well, that's, that's uh, Bobby Campo. And I was, like, I was floored. I was like, oh, my God, man, he sounds amazing. And this the sound. And, and this wasn't, you know, it wasn't rock and roll. It wasn't rhythm and blues. It was jazz. Yeah. And uh, that's one thing we haven't really talked a whole lot about so far. But uh, that's something you're very steeped in and influenced by as well. Well, and, and the thing is, is like, some people know this, but maybe a lot of people don't. Before, before I'm a jazz musician, you know, I, w- I spent since the age of 10 until my mid-20s or early 20s just learning how to play the trumpet. So mm-hmm. I was a legit, they call it legit, but it's all legit, but a classical. Yeah. I, my master's degree is in trumpet pedagogy. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I, I played in the Baton Rouge Symphony for 19 seasons. All right. And so, uh, and I subbed with the New Orleans Opera and the New Orleans Symphony on several occasions. So, right. um, yeah, you You're know, you get that call and goes, man, are you are you available uh, on the nineteenth? He says, I have called everybody else. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, I can do it, but uh, but occasionally, you know, you know, so, but my reputation is mostly as a show player which means you can play big bands and you can play Broadway shows and, you know, those kinds of things. So I get a mm-hmm. lot of calls. Like I got Wicked coming up in New Orleans in December. The, the, the touring Broadway show Wicked, that, that'll be at the Sanger? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so. Well, in, I know in our, in our history of playing music together, it's, it's mostly been, I guess, mostly in the jazz. Um, yeah. Jazz is such a broad well, term, but that, that's sort had, of idiom. you and I... Had maybe twenty good years at Geno's. Like that's right, a, uh, you know, a wonderful Italian restaurant here in Baton Rouge. Yeah. And and you know, and Gino is a really wonderful jazz aficionado, uh, and he supported jazz and uh, years. you know, and it was so much fun, you know, because oh, because yeah. he never asked you to play anything or, you know, we're not going to do Freebird and. You know, if we did, it might be an interesting three bird. <laughs> be a little five, different, maybe. yeah. Right. Um, but regardless, um, th- those were great informative years. You know, because a lot mm-hmm. of good players would play with us and sit in. And, well, and a know. little uh, kind of um, jumping into that, uh, in a big part of Baton Rouge jazz history is at that restaurant because I remember being uh, a high schooler 
Oh, yeah. And uh, the pianist who we were both very good friends with, um, Lawrence Siebert, Larry Siebert, had just moved back from New York, I believe, and uh, started a residency there. And we started a solo <laughs> piano. And then like Gino likes to tell this story where it just like kind of grew. And, you know, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, I think I could use a bass player. I think I could use a drummer. And then Larry was bringing in... A-list guys from New Orleans, Johnny Vodakovich. Um, well, he was using Dr. Bill Grimes here in town, who's an amazing bassist, amazing musician. And it just grew and grew, and I just remember thinking back on it, that was m really my university for music, oh, was sure. just checking that sure, out. Sure, 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 sure. You know. I would go in and sit in whenever I can, you know, and just try not to stink up the place. Because, yeah, yeah. you know, you're, you're dealing with, you're with just the best very, players. very high level of musicianship. Right. And so... You got to bring it. Yeah. So that was kind of a thrill for us to kind of, I feel like, carry on that tradition for, you know, Larry eventually stopped doing yeah. that, moved back to New Orleans, and um, we, w we had a residency there for a good long time, about oh 20 yeah. years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of jazz, let's play some. Um, let's do Autumn Leaves. Okay. <coughs> I'm going to set you up. Thank you. 
Autumn leaves, and I guess uh, now I'm thinking about it. Um, backtracking, so we started this with um, a tune called "Doxy," and then we played um, Duke Ellington's "Things, uh, ain't things what They, ain't used, what they to used to Be." Yeah. Um, well, anything else you'd like to add? Like anything we haven't talked about? No, I mean, just this is a wonderful experience, right? And I am. Um, I know that part of what we're doing is sort of an educational outreach. Mm -hmm. So if you're a trumpet player and you're listening to this, guys, you have to listen to, okay? Oh, yeah, do that. The top sure. of the list, Clark Terry. Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and Dizzy Gillespie. The, these are the obvious play And Miles Davis. Clark Terry, we had the privilege of doing a concert with Clark as the featured soloist with the Southeastern Jazz Band with Forche mm -hmm. conducting. It was just amazing, and he was such an amazing human being. Mm -hmm. And his technique, his ability, Dizzy Gillespie went to um, Clark's wife one day, and she says, do you know who you're married to? And he goes, she goes, Diz, we've been married ever many years we've been married. He goes, no, no, you're married to the greatest trumpet player on earth. <laughs> now, that's coming from Dizzy Gillespie. Right. Now, I heard that story, so, I, you know, Y'all, you're going to have to fact check me on that and write Mike. Mike at the uh, <laughs> yes, I'm going to catch that one. Uh, but, uh, no, those, those are the guys. And, you know, there's such a list, right? Uh, mm -hmm. But, and lately I've been, uh, I've been, the, the, you know, YouTube and the Internet gets a, gets a bad rap, and deservedly so for a lot of things. But some really good things. Mm -hmm. Lately, I found a, a website where you can watch Claudio Roditi transcription solos, transcriptions of his solos as he's playing them. Wow. So somebody videotaped the, the, the concerts and then transcribed the solo. Oh, yeah. And so as, as he's playing, so you're watching the fingers go down, you're listening to the phrasing, and you're seeing the notes. Dude, that's, that's an education. And I'm sure it's not just Claudio. It's... it's a lot of guys uh, out there have been done that too. Forgive it, the. Uh, you know, it really is amazing, and I would often tell my students, um, 
in a very old man way, uh, you are so lucky and privileged because you can pretty much think of just about anything. And I, I was I was showing them something. It was a, a wonderful recording of Christopher Chris Potter, the saxophonist, playing with um, a pianist. And they were doing all the things you are, the standard. And it was just an amazing rendition of it. it yep. Very modern. And, uh, and of course, you know, students like, oh, well, yeah, there's an another version where it's all transcribed and you can watch it as it goes by. And I'm like, right. you know, back in... You know, that, that, that's like, yeah. No, back, back in the, in the day, day of having we, to go get the album. We had to drop to the needle on the record <laughs> and completely destroy the record while we're right. trying to learn. Right. The first one I did that with was uh, Lou Soloff solo on Spinning Wheel. Pick it up. And then, you know, well, you know how it does, how you do that. But transcribing is an integral part of learning how to play any jazz music at all but uh, and that's the thing you know I'm, I'm going to kind of get on the soapbox here but I, I think students today kind of miss that sometimes if you're with a good teacher they will they will iterate that but it is a language you know it's not an it can be an academic thing if you make it and there's a lot of um, uh, things to study in the language but it is a language and it's an aural a-u-r-a-l tradition right and, it, and, and the best players I feel like and I think you probably agree is they learned it that way. Oh yeah, you know, you know. There's no shortcuts. Some of those, um, I mean, you hear stories about like the Stride guys, uh, Willie Piano Smith and or Willie uh, Lyon Smith. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. well, Lyon Smith. I'm sorry, and uh, uh, Taylor. Uh, Art Tatum. Art yeah. Tatum, but Billy Taylor. Oh, Billy Taylor. Yeah. You know, he said Billy. We did an interview one time, and he said, "Yeah." He said we'd go to the clubs and we hear these guys play, and they'd be all these piano players in the audience, right? And um, and we were the young, the young lions, and, and it was in New York. And he said, we go back to somebody's apartment, they'd be a piano player. And he said, yeah, kid, go ahead. Show, us, show me what you got. So, you know, he tells a story about sitting down to start to play some stuff like that. And he says, he says I got about four measures into it. And Willie the Lion Smith's pushing, no, no, it goes like this. Right. And then he, right. <laughs> and he says, and I, I love the way Dr. Taylor put it, he says, you take your spanking and then you go home and practice. Right. You know. Right. And uh, you've seen how it's done. Now go do your homework. Yeah. yeah. So, and and that's you know, and I'll make one comparison to baseball. Okay. And that is this: you can't be afraid to fail. You know, mm -hmm. uh, Skip Bertman used to tell you. I heard one of his players say, "He said, yeah, Skip, you say all the time, baseball is a game of failure." I mean, think of it, where else, where else in sports that if you get successful one out of four times, you're going to make several million dollars a year, <laughs> okay? So, Never thought about that. Yeah. yeah, you get one hit in four, and it's like, uh, yeah, oh, man, right, dude, we right. want you. <laughs> so um, you, if you're going to solo and you can't – people who you are in awe of, don't be afraid. They're friendly. I mean, I'm a big Bobby Shue fan. When he was at LSU, he made himself available. And we had lunch a couple of times, and we talked music, and we did a lot of good stuff. What a sweet, wonderful thing to do. But any of those guys are, are willing and will do that for right. you. And right. uh, they're passing on. That's their legacy as well. They're mm -hmm. passing things on. And so, so don't be afraid of failure. So if you go up to somebody and say, you know, 
man, can you show me how to do this? And, and the guy may have had a bad day, you know, and who knows what's going on in his life. He said, well, some other time. You know, that's okay. Right. You know, we both had a student who was unafraid to the max, and he would call people in New York while he was in high school, oh, yeah. famous yeah. people, mm-hmm. and ask them, you know, questions. And he is now one of the better and harder working musician piano players in New Orleans. Absolutely. So, um, he, yeah, he's one who's um, earned every bit of the success oh yeah. he's having. It's Chris Carell. He, and he's, he, may, yeah. he may be the only guy that actually listens. I don't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, look, uh, let's, let's play the audience out on something. So um, I want to do a tune, because I know we both love it, called uh, Softly as in a Morning Sunrise. Um. I'm going to set you up. Thank you. 
Thank you, Bobby Campo. Thank you, Mike Esnall. It's been a pleasure. A pleasure, bud. The Arts Council of Greater Baton Rouge would like to acknowledge our generous sponsors, the Shell Corporation, the National Endowment for the Arts, the Louisiana Office of Cultural Development, and the City of Baton Rouge. 